Okay, I think we can start. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for today's event on women's political leadership in Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, a lot of territory. I'm Jill Darty. I'm a global fellow at the Wilson Center, as well as the host of the Kennan Institute's podcast, Kennan X, big advertisement for that. Uh, you can stay up to date with the Kennan Institute by visiting our website and subscribing to our Russia file and Focus Ukraine blogs, as well as subscribing to the podcast that I just mentioned, Kennan X, and another great one that's called the Russia file. And you can also find out more about women's programming uh, by visiting our website where we have publications and events devoted to women's activism, uh, the gender gap and other critical topics. And to celebrate Women's History Month, we've added a new quiz uh, to test your knowledge of famous women in history. So beginning today, um, our subject, okay? Uh, women in politics, in the region that we're interested in, which of course is Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. You know, according to the United Nations, women serve as heads of state in only 22 countries. But in 2020, women in Eurasia made headlines for political breakthroughs across the region. Moldova, we had Maya Sandu elected president. In Belarus, which got a lot of attention, uh, for the protests, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya was a primary opposition candidate against President Alexander Lukashenko. And then in Ukraine, percentage of female members of parliament actually doubled over last year, quite significant. And in Russia, there's a new generation of women who are running for office and promoting uh, important political agendas, despite the lack of uh, true competitive politics in the country. So as I began to think about this and how we could approach it, it's a pretty broad subject here. Um, I thought, you know, there are some basic issues. So societies don't change overnight. Uh, and yet something appears to have changed. So what is that thing? And that's what we're going to try to delve into and understand this morning. And we have three, we're very lucky to have three experts sharing their experience and their opinions with us this morning. Each of our speakers will be giving uh, opening remarks, kind of short, about 10 minutes. Then we're gonna open it up to a discussion among us. And then we're gonna open it up to your questions. So if you would begin to think about what you might want to ask our guest, reminder that uh, throughout the program, you can submit questions via email. And that is to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. You can use Twitter and that is to at Kennan Institute or on our Facebook page. And please include your name and affiliation. So I want to introduce our guest uh, from Belarus. Actually, she's joining us uh, from Germany right now. That's uh, Katsirina Schmatzina. She is a political analyst focusing on Belarus's foreign policy and regional security. She's currently a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, as well as a board member of the Belarusian Organization of Working Women. And she's an expert on, a local expert on Belarus for the World Bank's Women, Business and Law Report. 
She was a non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund in 2020 and the Think Visegrad Fellowship in 2019. And then finally, as if that's not enough, she worked for the American Bar Association where she managed democratic governance and rule of law projects. She has a master's in international relations from Syracuse University in New York and a law degree from the Belarusian State University. Then we have Valeria Utkina, who is coming to us from Moscow. She is an associate professor at the National Research University, Higher School of Economics in Moscow. And she teaches courses on civil service and public administration, including a gender, this sounds very interesting to me, gender and development course for master's students. And she also is head of the research project group, Women and Gender in Public Administration, at the, higher, at the uh, higher School of Economics. And her research is really concentrated in the area of the theory of governance, application of the theory toward Russia's practical needs and uh, primarily gender and public administration. And then finally, last but not least, is Marina Rudyanka. She is gender equality and, a, and social inclusion specialist. She consults on international technical assistance projects, and she's had 20 years experience supporting parliamentary and justice reforms. Gender mainstreaming and especially civic engagement, that's a subject we'll definitely be getting into in all of these countries, civic engagement in Ukraine. She is experienced in building the capacity of civil service organizations, I should say civil society organizations, uh, to participate in government decision-making, that kind of conducting government oversight and other activities, especially trying to promote the inclusion of marginalized people, including women, who are facing multiple forms of discrimination. And currently she's a consultant on gender equality and social inclusion for USAID. So I know that's a long introduction, but I think it's important to see, you know, we have three different areas uh, with Katsarina, it's rule of law, with Valeria, civil service, public administration, and then finally, um, Marina is civil society. So again, Thinking of your questions, if you have them, uh, please begin to think about them and you can submit them by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute and on our Facebook page, and please tell us who you are. So um, again, trying to kind of stand back and look at this, how concretely, you know, we've, we're reading a lot about all of these countries now. And I would say, especially Belarus in connection with women who have led the protests. So there are a lot of headlines, but concretely, th these are my kind of overall questions. Concretely, how is this um, inclusion of women and participation of women very actively affecting their societies and their political systems? Uh, is there a common thread in all these three countries? And is this just a trend, you know, kind of a fluke or will it last? So Valeria, I'm gonna put you in the hot seat first. So you, uh, I wanna start with a question, but feel free to kind of, you know, go broader on this. But I'm thinking of um, some very interesting, really outstanding young Russian politicians, public administration, Oksana Pushkina, 
uh, Anastasia Rakova, and then you have the Russian opposition, uh, uh, Yulia Galyanina and Lyubov Sobel. And they seem to be very different from the politicians you know, that I covered when I was working in Moscow, like um, Irina Hakamada, et cetera, Ella Pamfilova. So are these new leaders, is it a, a, what does it say, the emergence of these young women involved in politics? What does it say about Russian society? Is there a generational change? Just if you could start with that, thank you. <sighs> Even style. Thank you uh, very much for today's opportunity to speak on the very interesting and very important topic about the women and public policy and public administration. But um, if you don't mind, I want to uh, lead uh, my presentation to uh, answering uh, this particular question because to understand what's going on right now, um, uh, let me come to the beginning and to speak um, just a few words maybe to tell about um, the situation, how we have come uh, to what we have right now. And since all of us are from the post-Soviet um, location and the territory, um, I want to say a few words about the uh, post-Soviet trap and uh, to pay attention to the situation right now. So um, to start with, I want to mention that um, uh, this is uh, 1917, and it is well known that uh, in uh, Russia and in that period in Soviet Union, women uh, became eligible to vote and in, in the country. And um, if we come um, in 100 years later, uh, about uh, 2017, for example, if we look at the worldwide index of women as public uh, sector leaders, uh, Russia is here on, uh, has only uh, 30%. And uh, the question arises, what, what is going on? And now a few words about post-Soviet trap. Uh, everybody knows for sure that uh, that was uh, Alexandra Kalantai, the very first uh, woman minister in world history. But um, after her, only few women uh, were um, in the leadership positions and held a ministerial post. And I should say it's very important to uh, highlight this um, particular fact uh, because um, um, in uh, our society uh, till today it's uh, an opinion that uh, in Soviet period it was uh, uh, gender equity and equality and um, women uh, were represented in governmental structures but honestly say it's not true because uh, not a single woman was even a member of the Politburo and only one once it was a candidate and it was uh, well known Ekaterina Furtseva. And what happened after in Russia since uh, 1991, there were uh, only 10 women in Russian cabinet and not more than three at a time, but sometimes um, not even one. And uh, for example, in the cabinet of Mikhail Fratkov in 2004, 2007, um, there were none. And uh, it is just a few words about uh, previous period. Uh, 
if we uh, come uh, to the um, uh, modern uh, Russian uh, situation, um, we shouldn't forget that um, Russia is uh, uh, responsible um, for the uh, position of women and for gender equality because uh, there are lots of international acts uh, Russia um, have signed and then they were ratified by Russia and it, in CEDAW and uh, um, different declarations uh, and uh, um, as far as today's situation is drastically different, I need uh, just uh, to mention this uh, very important uh, point. And uh, now, uh, since we do not have uh, lots of time, uh, I want uh, to speak about uh, the modern situation. What's going on right now in um, Russian public politics um, connected with women? So it's only uh, once uh, or um, the uh, party of women uh, in uh, Russian parliament, uh, and it was in 1993. But now, um, honestly say, uh, women are underrepresented in um, the decision-making level. And uh, sometimes for conservative uh, uh, people, it's not clear why. Because in a, a particular uh, cabinet of ministers, uh, it's uh, 32 people and only three women, and it is about 19%, but still they can say that it is three women. However, it's only uh, one uh, woman um, who is the um, federal min minister. She is uh, a minister of uh, culture, but to others, uh, she, uh, they are well known and um, both of them are deputy prime ministers and uh, they come uh, to big politics um, so long ago they uh, made a huge career um, on the civil service so um, they uh, didn't come uh, from um, election process or from business, uh, they um, did it uh, very complicated very long uh, uh, way uh, to be uh, in the cabinet. And if we speak about uh, the election process and the uh, um, uh, all that women that are, uh, were elected and um, on the high level positions, uh, here we come to uh, State Duma and uh, to, um, uh, to the uh, upper chamber of uh, Russian Federation and what's going on here. Um, uh, till today, in Russia, we do not have uh, gender statistic officially uh, connected with the decision-making level. So uh, to make it clear how many women are in State Duma or uh, in um, federal uh, cham uh, chamber, uh, I should uh, count it uh, myself. And I did it uh, for today and I uh, want uh, to present uh, uh, these um, numbers. Um,
So what is there? Uh, if uh, we speak uh, about uh, Council of Federation, it's an upper chamber, um, includes only 30 women senators, which uh, is about 18% of the upper house of parliament. Um, however, Valentina Matvienka, she is a well-known, she's a chairwoman woman of the uh, Council of Federation, and uh, she's there uh, from 2011, and she's incorporated in the uh, patriarchy uh, system of uh, Russian power, and uh, honestly say she is um, um, a represent, uh, representative of a male um, a style of leadership. She is very strong and she is patri pat patriarchy uh, in her own way of um, leading. And uh, here I should mention that um, out of uh, 85 subjects, it's only uh, 26 um, that have women representatives in the upper house of parliament. And this is only about uh, 30 percent. And uh, this number is um, cruel. And what is more important here, the average age of uh, women senators is 56 years old. Um, if, if we speak about State Duma, it's uh, seventh now, um, State Duma of the Federal Assembly of the Russian Federation has achieved the highest number of uh, women deputies in the country's post-Soviet history, and now it's uh, about 16% uh, of the deputies. And um, here increase uh, the number of women um, due to the mixed electoral system. However, uh, most of women do not try to uh, raise uh, women questions. And um, it's well known that only Oksana Pushkina is a modern um, deputy that trying to uh, strive for the um, legislation about uh, gender violence and uh, protecting women and um, trying to uh, raise the, uh, the question uh, about the gender equity um, law. And what is important here about State Duma also that um, also um, the um, average age of uh, women here um, is uh, uh, 57 years old. Uh, and uh, today uh, of uh, 456 deputies, it's only 70 uh, women. It's, uh, uh, I should say, about 15%. Uh, to conclude with uh, these um, officials, uh, I should um, say that um, in 2017, um, in March, um, it was National Strategy of Women um, approved by the government and it was um, uh, kind of a strategic document um, that um, proclaimed uh, the importance of uh, women in the country and um, was um, due to uh, increase uh, the development of um, uh, women in politics and public administration, increase 
uh, economical development of women and so on. But uh, this document was only um, declaration without any financial plan and uh, no uh, understanding how it would work uh, till today we don't have. Um, let me uh, move uh, to the uh, reasons why the situation is that way. And also, if we look at the uh, regional structures of power, uh, the situation with uh, women empowerment and leader uh, leadership is uh, not that good. Like. Um, if it is good, like uh, in the um, federal parliament. Uh, why uh, from uh, the first sight, uh, most of people even do not have any opportunity to understand uh, that the situation is not good. Because uh, we can um, say that um, Today, this is the trend of public administration, feminization in Russian Federation. What does it mean? Uh, that in uh, public service, um, there are more than 70% uh, of women bureaucrats and uh, male uh, bureaucrats mostly on the decision-making level, uh, while uh, female uh, bureaucrats are underrepresented there. But if we look in the whole, and most um, conservative uh, people and um, all over the country say that in every single municipality, it's more women than men. Why it happened? Because uh, if we look at the low level of power, it's always more women. And where is uh, lack of resources and lack money, there are more women uh, than men. But if we come to the upper, um, levels of power, it's always more, uh, more men. And uh, the, um, the gender statistics here is um, crucial. Well, um, why it happened? First of all, uh, it's because of gender stereotypes, because um, most people still do believe uh, that uh, uh, women uh, should uh, go in for caring uh, spheres and uh, to provide all domestic uh, work. Uh, and the second reason is the result of the first one. Uh, most of women are um, providing a double shift. They do have double shifts and uh, um, they do not have enough time uh, to develop their career intentions. Um, they uh, spending their time um, after work, before work, caring for their child, uh, ch children and for their uh, homemates. Uh, the third reason, the last, uh, and um, as for me, it's the most important why women are underrepresented in the um, uh, in public uh, policy in modern Russia is financial um, 
situation and uh, economical situation, it's not the secret that uh, today women uh, in Russia, uh, more women than uh, men uh, have high education and uh, women in Russia are more educated and uh, gender stereotypes always uh, uh, call women at the girls at school and uh, young women in the universities uh, to uh, get excellent marks, uh, to be um, very precise in their um, studying. But in the very end, uh, this is male students and male um, people who uh, get um, working places and uh, uh, after all uh, come to the decision making level and um, the situation now is changing uh, coming to the end of my introductory talk i, I should say uh, um, that in 2017 when they asked me um, also at one of the public talk uh, do you uh, what what is going on with the feminism in the russian federation I said that uh, now it's not that popular that could be, and it's only local um, initiatives. And what is in 2021? Uh, the situation uh, changing a lot. Now uh, everybody in Russia knows what is uh, Nasilunet Violence. That now uh, it is an NGO that providing help for uh, women that um, face uh, domestic violence. Or everybody knows who is Alena Popova. She is. Um, uh, also uh, striving for this um, law and um, what, what, what Aksana Pushkina is doing in uh, State Duma also uh, now knows everybody in the country. What does it mean? It's only a few uh, examples, very basic, um, but still uh, now it's a new generation uh, of women who uh, is responsible for their future and who uh, wants uh, to change the situation and uh, to influence uh, their particular positions. They're starting to make um, presentations at school about uh, feminism and uh, the position of women uh, in the universities. They're starting uh, to um, to, uh, to start self-organization, um, self-organizing uh, in local uh, clubs or uh, reading clubs about uh, feminism in the 20th century and so on and so forth. And that means that um, just, and uh, what, what is important here that uh, now women are more represented at the labor market than um, men. So uh, my um, focus, focus here is very, um, very good that uh, in maybe five or 10 years, uh, the situation will continue to change. And uh, if we speak, for example, about uh, the beginning of uh, modern Russia, for example, about Irina Hakamada, uh, she won't be, uh, wouldn't be the president of the country. But uh, if we look at uh, the situation right now, uh, maybe on the next or um, uh, next presidential elections or uh, in 10 years, um, uh, female candidates uh, will have 
I don't know, maybe a half of the whole voices. And um, it's a huge uh, difference. And now we have Lubov Sobol and uh, Yulia Galamina, who are, um, they uh, now, uh, they are very important uh, for modern uh, generation like role models. Maybe uh, for now they wouldn't change the situation, but uh, they can help to make it in future. That's all for now. And I will continue to um, discuss. Thank you for, 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 for that. Thank for you, Lydia. That, that was very interesting. You know, I've always found, um, no matter which country uh, I've covered news in, um, it always seems that when you go back to the original revolution, let's say you started with 1917 in Kalantai, isn't it interesting that in the beginning of the revolution, the women are the ones who really kind of carry out a lot of the work of the revolution, and then time quickly passes, and then it's the men who take over, kick out the women. <laughs> and uh, it, it takes sometimes a very long time for the women to come back and uh, have some influence and power. But now I want to turn to um, Marina. Marina, this is a really good introduction to kind of where you, your perspective on this issue. Because you look at, um, you know, grassroots level. It, and I, I think in Russia and many other countries, it's really the grassroots where a lot of this action and ferment is taking place. So let's begin, I'll kind of give you a double question. The person that I remember, and I think probably a lot of people, when they think of Ukrainian politicians, they think of Yulia Tymoshenko. But, and, and she's still in politics. She has been involved for a very long time, but there's this other generation. And as you pointed out, um, the percentage of female MPs doubled over last year in Ukraine, which is quite significant. But tell me, is this, is this kind of like ferment from the bottom, from the grassroots? Where is this coming from? Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, colleagues. And uh, uh, first of all, uh, I'd like uh, to thank you, Wilson Center and uh, Kenan Institute uh, for this uh, uh, discussion. And uh, I remember my experience uh, in Kenan Institute uh, as a great time uh, where I learned uh, uh, how to uh, prevent uh, and uh, report uh, conflict-related sexual violence uh, worldwide. And uh, it was really a good time and important uh, for my professional development. Uh, answering uh, your question, uh, yes. Uh, answer, yes. They are uh, modern uh, women politicians of Ukraine are from the grassroots uh, roots level. Uh, during the revolution of dignity, which was uh, conducted um, uh, in uh, 2013 uh, winter and uh, 2014, uh, women uh, played uh, a great role because uh, before the revolution, uh, during uh, the presidency uh, of Viktor Yanukovych, uh, who uh, has uh, gone to Russia, uh, the situation with uh, gender equality was uh, terrible because uh, he destroyed uh, the uh, national gender mechanism, the responsible ministry was uh, destroyed uh, and uh, anti-gender movement uh, uh, was transcended and supported uh, by 
uh, by the state, uh, in fact, and uh, women civil society organizations created a network to monitor uh, the violation of women's rights. Uh, and Ukraine is also a part uh, uh, of CEDA Convention, and uh, we uh, collected data and reported to CEDA Committee to uh, make uh, the situation visible uh, for. Uh, the UN and uh, other international organizations. And uh, during Revolution of Dignity, uh, many uh, women uh, civic activists uh, participated uh, to, uh, to uh, ensure the European uh, way uh, of development of our country, because European uh, integration means uh, uh, responding to the standards of human rights, of democracy, of uh, transparency, of uh, social justice, and uh, uh, of course, uh, gender equality, uh, and uh, uh, in, uh, ensuring uh, uh, dignity and uh, equality de facto, not uh, just uh, by paper. Uh, yeah, uh, so uh, during uh, 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 and uh, after the revolution, uh, women civil society organizations started to advocate uh, for the adoption uh, of uh, the new uh, gender equality, uh, uh, national uh, equality policies like uh, implementation of the national action plan, uh, adoption and then implementation of the national action plan on UN Security Council Resolution 1325, because uh, we know know about the uh, Russian aggression and uh, illegal annexation of uh, uh, Crimea and it was uh, critical uh, for Ukraine to have uh, this uh, national election plan and fortunately many countries supported us including USA uh, uh, other countries like uh, Swiss uh, Denmark uh, and Ukraine is a uh, uh, key uh, country of uh, the uh, National Action Plan on 1325 uh, of these countries. And uh, our women civil society organizations and activists advocated for this. And many of them uh, became um, uh, uh, candidates uh, uh, during the elections uh, and uh, uh, became uh, members of the parliament and uh, uh, became members uh, of uh, the local authorities. Uh, for uh, uh, many years, uh, women uh, activists advocated for gender polls uh, uh, at the uh, elected bodies and uh, it was uh, a Adopted, the gender quota is 40% uh, uh, at the uh, current uh, electoral code. Uh, and um, uh, just uh, one uh, uh, data, uh, last uh, uh, autumn we had uh, uh, elections uh, to uh, the local authorities and uh, 140,000 of women uh, were uh, candidates uh, and 36% uh, of them became um, members uh, of the uh, electoral local uh, electoral bodies uh, and the heads uh, of the amalgamated uh, uh, communities uh, and uh, uh, we have uh, uh, unfortunately we have only three members 
uh, of the cabinet of ministries, um, but uh, these uh, three women uh, are responsible for critical uh, uh, policies uh, on European integration uh, and the Euro-Atlantic integration uh, and uh, 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 Ministry of Veterans uh, is headed uh, by uh, uh, women, and uh, she uh, is a she is a great uh, a supporter of European uh, integration, and she is a general of the security uh, service of Ukraine. So uh, we uh, could. Um, uh, receive uh, uh, how to say evidence data that women uh, politicians uh, uh, advocate uh, for uh, European integration and uh, for gender mainstreaming in security sector reform uh, and uh, because uh, in uh, 2013 for example we had a list of forbidden professions for women including some military professions and of course according to the NATO standards we need to ensure gender mainstreaming in security sector reform and women are strong supporters of that of this we have uh, we have a gender caucus in our parliament it is a network of women and men in peace uh, who uh, are uh, developing uh, uh, draft laws on gender mainstreaming in different areas, uh, in uh, uh, women's empowerment, in uh, decreasing uh, uh, payment uh, gap, uh, uh, and ensuring uh, gender sensitive uh, secondary education uh, in Ukraine. So there are there are a lot of uh, examples that women uh, place. Um, uh, uh, play critical role uh, in European integration. Uh, unfortunately, there are uh, a lot of barriers and stereotypes, uh, as Valeria uh, said, uh, there are, they uh, exist uh, still uh, in Ukrainian uh, society and uh, there are gender movement, uh, anti-gender movement uh, in Ukraine, uh, which, uh, which are supported uh, by uh, Council of Church, for example, uh, which advocate uh, for some traditional values. Nobody knows what does it mean, the traditional values. Uh, but uh, we have uh, these uh, uh, supporters uh, and uh, um, attacks again uh, against the women uh, rights uh, defenders. Uh, and uh, I, I want uh, to say one thing that um, Ukraine has a strong uh, movement uh, of men supporters of gender equality. Uh, Ukraine is a part of your UN Women campaign, uh, he for she, uh, and uh, a number of uh, executive authorities uh, advocate, uh, advocate uh, for uh, gender sensitive reforms after gender audits, uh, which were conducted in these uh, executive uh, authorities. Uh, we have uh, strengthened the national uh, gender equality mechanism in 2017. Um, 
uh, our government established the institution of uh, uh, government gender commissioner and uh, uh, we are happy to have uh, Katerina Levchenko who has a strong uh, civil society background uh, as a gender commissioner and she advocates uh, uh, for gender equality for mainstreaming of it to every reform in Ukraine to ensure changes in our society. So I, I see my time, my 10 minutes finished. Thank you and I'll be happy to answer questions. All right, well, there's plenty of time left. And uh, speaking of time, we're going to go to our next expert, uh, Katsarina. And uh, remember, you know, questions, the audience, we will get to your questions, believe me. Uh, remember, you can submit them via email, kenan uh, at wilsoncenter.org, or you can go to Twitter at Kenan Institute or on our Facebook page, and please tell us uh, who you are. Now, um, going to our third guest, Katsarina Shmatsina. Uh, Katsarina, uh, I think some of the most dramatic video that we've seen in reporting recently has exactly been from Belarus. And you have Svetlana Tichanovskaya and all of these other, I guess it's called the trio or the two uh, women leaders who really broke into the male dominated field of politics. So is this actually the culmination of a movement that started quite a while ago, or was it really just kind of out of the blue that these women uh, appeared? Let, let me start with that, and maybe I'll put, throw another little question into your thoughts. We've been talking, as Marina was saying, you know, women's issues, women's issues. Sometimes women's issues aren't even talked about by women who get into positions of power. Uh, so I'd be interested in, in addition, where did these women come from? And do they actually bring up issues that are important to women? Uh, or do they just kind of keep that to the side and pursue their political agenda? So please, Katsarina. And Jill, you just posed all the great questions that actually help to analyze Belarusian situation from um, from more of a critical perspective, not just to be charmed by all those front pages uh, praising women trio and claiming that uh, Belarusian women are leading the protests and that they um, out of a sudden made a breakthrough uh, in the all male uh, world of uh, Belarusian politics. And I also loved your remark about uh, Kalantai and how the women, uh, like there's a historical case, how women were at the um, at the front of the revolutionary changes and then uh, the revolutionary wave throw them um, away. And um, I will make a quick uh, maybe a remark about uh, the previous years of the authoritarian regime we had in Belarus for like 26 years. And uh, during that time we were doing uh, and are relatively well on paper in terms of gender equality. Uh, but uh, it means that uh, it like it doesn't provide that the actual um, situation with women's rights is good. Uh, and thus, for instance, when uh, uh, president decided that we want to look good internationally, he said that we need to allow more women into parliament. 
and literally the next elections out of a sudden we had 30% of women in the parliament. But then does it, given that none of the elections were recognized uh, by uh, international communities complying with international electoral standards and knowing that the parliament is a rubber stamp institution which does not decide much, it is not um, hard for, for the authoritarian system to let a little bit more you know, women in and then to present that we're sort of doing good uh, in international rankings. And similarly, uh, at the previous uh, parliamentary elections, 2016, I believe, there were two women uh, opposition candidates who were allowed to get into the parliament. And I say allowed, meaning that there is no like fair vote count. We know that the elections were rigged. And that was a purely uh, political decision, again, to look good uh, for the Western, um, uh, Western uh, actors. And then those two women were allowed to get in. And then again, the rationale was probably that those women were less dangerous in the eyes of the authorities compared to uh, male candidates who were coming from the opposition. Uh, assuming that they won't be able to uh, to fight as uh, efficiently for politics, for political goods as um, men. Uh, and also from my observation, from what was happening with um, opposition political parties in the previous years and the previous campaigns, women tended to take less prestigious, less visible positions even in the opposition parties, and they were doing some door-to-door -door campaigns, collecting signatures, uh, doing all the you know, bureaucratic uh, paperwork, and then men would take those most public positions, speak to the media, and then uh, lead the protests in the past. And then what happened in uh, uh, during the presidential campaign during the summer 2020, is that out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, there were these three women coming to the political stage, Svetlana Tikhanovska, Maria Kalesnikova, uh, Veronika Tsepkala, and they were portrayed and perceived by Belarusian domestic audience and internationally as this new um, example of female uh, leadership. And they were indeed very inspiring, um, sort of combination or inspiring team, particularly uh, because they managed to unite their teams, because they were each representing essentially the male front runners who were removed from the race, uh, who were uh, not allowed to run as uh, presidential candidates, some were put in prison, some uh, were uh, forced to leave the country, uh, and then those women stepped in uh, like Svetlana Tikhanovskaya running on behalf of her husband essentially. Um, and um, mobilizing his political capital and then still uh, daring to, to register, to go and register at the Electoral Commission. And then uh, it was very spectacular how those three women representing essentially three different uh, political groups, uh, they managed to agree and to speak as a united voice of the opposition to the existing regime. And there were many comparisons at that time saying that those women were much more efficient in negotiating and uh, uh, framing their messages to the audience compared to male um, candidates, opposition candidates in the previous years. Um, but still, um, I wouldn't be that maybe charmed by whole the picture of uh, female breakthrough. My question is, or rhetorical question is, will it last? when the revolution comes to some sort of logical end. 
Um, on, on one hand, of course, Svetlana Tikhanovska is doing an enormous job uh, and international stage uh, solidifying this uh, democratic voices for Belarus. Mm, and she has now uh, quite high rankings, uh, according to the polls inside the country, uh, as a uh, symbol of, as a political figure, but also more of a symbol um, of the uh, resistance. And then uh, Maria Kalesnikova is now in prison, but she made this courageous uh, deed when she refused to leave the country, when she, there was an attempt to forcefully relocate her, uh, push her outside of the country. Uh, and then she decided to stay knowing that she would uh, go to prison. Um, but at the same time, um, if we look at the rest of the team of the democratic opposition, they do not seem to be very uh, diverse in terms of gender representation. And then if you look at the appointments within the teams of the opposition candidates, when they uh, allocate who is responsible for, let's say, elaborating the uh, constitutional reform suggestions or our package for economic reforms for the future of Belarus, um, they, the team also seems to be more male uh, dominated, sort of as usual as in the previous years. And then uh, and uh, the women in this office, they tend to take the um, traditionally women uh, dominated areas, which is education, social um, care, and um, what was that, and youth work. And uh, this is just a um, small trend, which I hope will uh, change at some point. And then again, to be fair, uh, there is another structure within the democratic forces, which is the uh, coordination council and also the female group um, uh, in, the, in this council, and they are more active and the most active maybe to raise those um, feminist uh, slash women empowerment messages versus the major group of the opposition, including those uh, female figures from the female trio. They merely talk about purely politics. They do not raise uh, women uh, related issues. They do not talk about gender equality. Uh, but I would say that it is still important that they there is uh, maybe less visible, but uh, voice of this female group who talk that we do not want, if we have new government in Belarus, uh, we don't want to replicate those old scenarios. And we want to make sure that women follow this uh, breakthrough that, what, that was done by this female trio. And then we want to raise awareness uh, on political culture and engage other women to follow this path and to dare to take new positions and possibly like in the in the activism and also at the um, in the future sort of political uh, institutions and also when we talk about women uh, taking part in the protests um, i have maybe mixed feelings on that uh, when uh, there were different um, protests during past half a year divided or yeah like divided by different groups like students would go on a march and then um, factory workers would get together and go on the march and then there were all uh, female groups uh, and, and then some of those women would carry flowers and some posters and go uh, to the marches to the protests um, underlying the all peaceful nature of the protest. But then it is a good question, was this a 
conscious choice of those women, uh, whether this um, femininity and the weakness of a woman, was it exploited? Or maybe there, there are some women who um, consciously share those values and want to and want to present themselves that way, then this is great. But if this is a public perception or some traditional stereotype imposed on them by the organizers of the marches, then this is another question. And I would say there was a little bit of both um, components in these marches. And I would want more to hear this approach that women have, uh, they constitute half of the population of Belarus. And women are present in every group, be it students, factory workers, or uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, and they are participating in this general protest, but they constitute half of this group. And then uh, I would again underline that this women trio, those bright political figures, they were running ma mainly on, um, uh, they, they did not pay specific attention to the gender issues and to women empowerment. And uh, there were some messages uh, from, let's say, Svetlana Tikhanovska or her um, colleagues uh, at the rallies. They were saying something like, oh, I'm here, I'm running in support uh, to show support and love to my husband who's now in prison. Uh, which is okay, uh, like everyone has the right to express themselves, uh, etc. But then there were, again, like there was not so much of a uh, women empowerment narratives. But at the same time, I've noticed that uh, when, let's say, Maria Kolesnikova was speaking at those rallies, uh, she was saying something like, Today I was crying uh, because I was so excited uh, because I saw these people dare, who dare to protest or to challenge the uh, authoritarian regime and those brave people gathered on the streets, etc. And they were um, those women were using sort of um, very emotional language and not ashamed of it, which is a great deal because in, in previous years I would say if the woman was a speaker uh, at a panel discussion or speaking at a rally, talking to a huge uh, big group of people, would she dare to use this language and to own her emotionality or uh, whatever she's actually feeling or she would rather try to uh, raise her or to lower her voice to sound more convincing etc. And so I've seen this trend as more women are uh, becoming publicly visible in political life in Belarus they become more empowered, maybe not always consciously, but uh, they own this um, expressions. Uh, and then I would also uh, underline that there are many women activists uh, who are facing repressions at the moment, and uh, some um, some of them are in uh, in uh, prison or facing other forms of oppression. And it bears an additional cost for them in the sense that the uh, authorities, when they want to uh, target women activists, they tend to threaten them with uh, taking away their children, saying that the children of politically active uh, sort of, uh, women are in, in danger. Um, and uh, also this uh, pandemic situation adds up and um, it all, piles up to the situation when women have to choose are they politically active, how much time they care for their um, regular duties at home, uh, and uh, what to do with the domestic violence situation and the COVID pandemic. And I would say that we are not talking enough about this um, combination of these factors. There should be more attention to this. 
But then uh, I would also uh, bring up uh, some statistics. Um, so uh, Chatham House was conducting a public opinion poll uh, in, uh, in the fall 2020, and it said that uh, the 72% of Belarusians are now ready to see um, or vote for a women uh, presidential candidate. And this is an important uh, breakthrough given that in the previous years, uh, the public opinion was rather in favor of a man, of a male candidate who would be married, have kids, uh, but not a woman. Uh, and this is, um, this is a um, trend which uh, gives some um, hope for us. So I guess I will stop here and join the Q&A session. There we go. I should be unmuted. That was really interesting, Katerina. Um, you know, I think there's kind of a dilemma sometimes when women get into politics, no matter which country, what do they concentrate on? What do they want to do legislatively? And sometimes it can be just kind of a broad spectrum of what men would do or, you know, and you're getting into this, do they actually get into issues that are defined as women's issues? Because women's issues are usually uh, considered not as important, <laughs> even though, of course, they're extremely important. But it could be, um, you know, childcare legislation, things that deal with health, issues like that. And sometimes I, this is just me talking. I don't have any you know, background on this particularly, but women don't want to talk about it because it's perceived as not that serious. You know, so that's always an issue. But I want to, we're getting a couple of very interesting questions and they're related. So let me throw to those. Well, now uh, for the audience, please, if you have questions, now's the time. We technically have about a half an hour. We can go uh, as long as that. We can go a little bit shorter, but please give the questions. And we have one that I think is quite interesting and follows on what we've talked about. It came from Twitter and it's from Will McChesney. And um, he says, in a recent Ken and X episode, which of course is my podcast, uh, shameless mention of my podcast, um, I, I mentioned that the younger generation in Russia is more active on the internet. Is there a connection? In other words, does engagement on the internet improve the participation of women? And it, you could actually kind of broaden that perhaps to include online activism, particularly in regard to what has happened recently in Belarus. Um, I think we'll start with Valeria, and this time let's, uh, panelists, try to keep your comments very brief, but this, this role of the internet uh, and the younger generation. Valeria, do you have something on that? Yeah, mm, uh, my comment here. Yes, please, please. Yeah, uh, my idea is that you're absolutely right. Uh, since uh, uh, Russian uh, power structures decided to influence uh, some huge internet uh, resources like uh, Twitter, uh, Telegram, and so on, and um, the question arises, what uh, would be with YouTube next year and uh, some uh, special legislation uh, has uh, signed up and uh, about the uh, sovereign uh, internet um, 
if I, I um, translate correctly, that means that uh, our internet can be blocked from international society. Sovereign, and, sovereign internet. Um, sovereign. Sovereign, yeah, exactly. thank you. Yeah, and that means that um, presidential administration and um, everybody uh, has uh, understood the huge influence uh, of um, uh, ICT on the uh, modern generation, but uh, still uh, my um, idea is that um, um, this is uh, over, um, uh, over assessed. That means that um, if uh, today we do have uh, free internet and uh, we have some protests and we sometimes even some huge protests, but we didn't come to the uh, to the end here and we didn't come to the results of this. Um, uh, protests and we didn't come to the uh, some uh, revolts and uh, no revolution has still happened. Maybe that's not um, here um, the um, the right time to to block uh, Twitter and other uh, internet resources because uh, uh, this is uh, the good. Um, a place uh, to for the discussion and um, mostly uh, people do not use Facebook in, in Russia and uh, it's a false generalization to uh, make uh, some um, um, some understandings about the Russian um, uh, revolutionary situation or something like that, uh, uh, watching uh, Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, most of the people do not use this uh, social media and they um, understand uh, the whole situation in the country a bit different. And all this um, huge um, service, uh, service uh, uh, for example, survey uh, on uh, would you uh, um, elect a, a woman, uh, choose, uh, choose a woman uh, for the presidential campaign? And still most of the Russian population answers no. That means that um, the, um, the rest of the country, if we don't speak about Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, they are not ready for these uh, huge changes. And uh, as for me, we should um, a bit uh, wait uh, for this uh, young generation uh, to grow up enough and uh, to start their political careers and their political intentions in their local parm uh, parliaments, local uh, some activi uh, activist uh, structures some, uh, uh, on the local level. And uh, that means that uh, right now, um, the huge uh, changes uh, will not happen in the country. And uh, I think in the whole region as well. Sorry, uh, Marina, I have a question for you that just came in 
and I, we kind of hinted it, at it at the top, and it concerns online abuse of female politicians. You were, you know, you had mentioned violence against women, et cetera. Here in the United States, this has become a very big deal that, uh, you know, people are trolled and attacked and really some terrible things uh, being done to women politicians online, especially on social media. Is this a problem? And I'll very briefly ask all three of you, but Marina, is this a problem um, in Ukraine? Yes, yes. Um, uh, the last um, uh, local elections uh, uh, provided uh, um, a number of cases uh, when uh, women uh, candidates uh, were stalked uh, via internet, uh, they uh, provocative content uh, were shared uh, on behalf of them or about them, uh, and uh, uh, some um, uh, violations of their rights uh, were, um, uh, and uh, some, uh, I don't know, uh, biases uh, about the women's role, like uh, it's not uh, a women's deal uh, to be a politician uh, or uh, to uh, introduce uh, some cases about corruption at the local level, for example, and uh, some women candidates uh, uh, made uh, publications about corruption in the procurement, uh, for example, uh, using uh, uh, local budgets, and uh, they were appealed uh, with uh, some uh, uh, phrases like uh, uh, better uh, go home and uh, cook uh, cooked uh, some uh, borscht in Ukrainian. It's uh, Ukrainian uh, traditional uh, dish. Uh, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, uh, we, we have these uh, cases, uh, but uh, we have uh, uh, strong uh, civil society organizations uh, which monitored this, reported, uh, and uh, cooperated with uh, election, uh, central election commission, uh, parliament to avoid them in future. Yeah. So I'm optimistic about the next uh, elections. All right. And Katsirina, same question though, this online uh, trolling and attacks on women, is it a problem? Because you have so many women in the public eye right now in Belarus. And if it is a problem, are there any government actions trying to you know, stop it or control it? Um, given that we are in the midst of the protest, I would say, well, and we don't have an actually functioning political system or the fair elections, it's a bit premature to say that like women would participate in a political campaign and then on the, uh, on the equal uh, foot and get some actual like public attention or chance of actually being elected somewhere. Mm. I would say that uh, there are attempts of the government to disseminate uh, defamation campaigns, but against um, all the opposition, uh, not only uh, women leaders, and then inside the uh, Belarusian opposition uh, electorate, inside the um, group of mobilized protesters, there's more of solidarity towards uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, and uh, people tend to be more 
um, understanding even if let's say like she's not a maybe when she was just learning how to become a politician when she would make some mistakes this were perceived with uh, in a very amicable friendly manner knowing that she's just learning and she's fighting for all of us but I guess like when we have more free and open society in actual elections uh, having still quite a traditional society with lots of stereotypes we could face this issue yeah it is very still a region that's quite traditional and Valeri what about uh, in Russia is this a problem mm. I'm not sure, unfortunately, because most of the country uh, still uh, believe in the same prejudice like in Ukraine, and they say that it's better to cook borscht than uh, we do also have borscht uh, for main meal. So it's uh, more important for women uh, to care children, and not only children, but also elder relatives and uh, all people in the family. And it's not even double burden, it's triple burden, because also modern uh, women should uh, look perfect and provide emotional labor. So uh, lots of things to do, and it's not your uh, business to go in for um, public structures uh, to go in for uh, politics. And here, uh, let me uh, give an example. We made a field work in Vladivostok. It's um, the other side of the uh, country. And uh, um, uh, when uh, we uh, made a series of interviews with the women in public administration there, uh, most of them uh, answered that they came uh, to work as public servants uh, for the stability and even some of them left their or sell their own business uh, to make it possible to combine their professional life, their uh, professional stable life with their private life and uh, uh, with uh, trying to uh, get a work-life balance. And uh, since this prejudice uh, from uh, even Soviet period uh, is uh, still exists in Russian society that women uh, should um, get married to have children and to do it uh, as early as possible. Uh, otherwise, you you will have nothing in your own life. Um, it's not. Um, uh, possible for women uh, to de develop their professional life uh, freely. And um, that's why one of our hugest results from our field work in Moscow and Vladivostok, that um, uh, it is um, the phenomena of uh, uh, self-discrimination and self-exclusion of women uh, from um, being uh, well represented in public sphere and in public administration, public policy, uh, politics in particular. And uh, I should come to my uh, previous uh, idea that uh, the only way here to influence uh, this is uh, to develop uh, um, financial independence of women and uh, to use their well uh, 
good education, uh, not only for um, raising um, smart children, but also to develop their career and uh, um, their uh, prof uh, professional development in the uh, public sphere. Okay. Um, I want to remind people we've got about 20 minutes maximum left. So don't forget, if you have questions, email kenan at wilsoncenter.org. Twitter, you can use at Kenan Institute or our Facebook page. And there's a good question here. I think maybe Marina would be the person to answer it, if you could, uh, bearing in mind that you're from Ukraine, but a uh, situation in Ukraine, what is the development of women and gender studies within the educational structures? And is there any cooperation with community or political levels? So education in this field, women and gender studies. Yeah, uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, we have, um, uh, as I know, in Ukraine, in Ukraine, we have the only one option on women's studies. Uh, Kiev uh, uh, National University name uh, uh, by Taras Shevchenko. Uh, this university has a, a master uh, uh, degree, I guess, on uh, women's studies. Uh, but um, uh, thanks uh, to the uh, international development partners, uh, we have a strong uh, uh, educational uh, support uh, for the public servants, uh, for uh, the security sector reform uh, as uh, uh, one example. Uh, in uh, December, uh, the uh, national, uh, the vice prime minister on European and Euro-Atlantic Atlantic integration and uh, national uh, security sector reform education institutions developed uh, uh, the first ever uh, course uh, on uh, gender mainstreaming in security sector and uh, it's a uh, uh, huge support uh, for the reform of the uh, security sector uh, to uh, towards uh, the standards uh, of NATO as uh, Ukraine is uh, planning uh, and uh, taking efforts uh, to uh, be a NATO, part of NATO. Uh, yeah, and uh, one data I'd like uh, to introduce about uh, gender uh, stereotypes uh, in um, Ukrainian society, National um, uh, Democratic Institute. Uh, uh, it's a US uh, uh, institution and uh, has a branch in Ukraine, uh, regularly conducted um, uh, public service about the perception of gender equality in Ukrainian society. And uh, last year it was uh, the last uh, one and I remember uh, the number that 76% uh, of uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, citizens uh, think uh, that uh, Ukraine should uh, move uh, implement the uh, policies and achieve uh, gender equality uh, in Ukrainian society. So it's a, a good support and public uh, persistence to this, uh, to the values of gender equality in, increased uh, to compare uh, with the periods uh, five years ago. And it's a, it's a good uh, um, success uh, of Ukraine.
Ukrainian society and our partners, of course. Valeria, um, I just want to very briefly, because we don't have a lot of time, but I know you're teaching a course in uh, gender and development for master's students. Um, who takes that course? Is it mainly women or is it men? Is it a combination? And did you have any trouble selling the administration of the university on creating that course? Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, yes, uh, I do teach, teaching. Uh, for master students, it is the course uh, Gender Development on the Program Population and Development. Most of their international students and uh, all over the world, but half of them are um, usually from Africa, from different parts. It's important. Now I know for sure all the difference that uh, you cannot say about Africa. You should uh, say, for example, Sub-Saharan uh, region of uh, Africa and so on, because they are very attentive to these details. And uh, I should say here that the part of uh, about 40% uh, of students are males, students and uh, from um, third world, if I may say so, uh, in these terms. Uh, well, and this is interesting uh, because most students are from um, different levels of knowing about uh, feminism and gender issues and some of them trying to, they want uh, in-depth knowledge uh, to discuss uh, transgender people in the future and some of them uh, still believe that uh, the place of uh, woman is on the kitchen and um, for me and uh, my colleague um, Olga Supova, uh, she's uh, she was the founder of that course and uh, she invited me uh, there. Um, it was a great challenge uh, to to lecture for such different students from uh, in one room, it's a person from Canada, from uh, India, Bangladesh, uh, from um, from Nigeria, and so on and so forth. But still, we're trying to. Um, uh, to, to do something with that. And uh, uh, it's great that uh, after the course, they give some um, feedback uh, that uh, they, they, they learn new things. And they, uh, after that, they come to their national context and trying to uh, sometimes to even to change something and also I'm uh, I'm, t I'm a head of um, uh, minor it's um, uh, uh, for uh, disciplines for bachelor students uh, from in my university from uh, different uh, programs uh, bachelor programs and uh, it is much more interesting because um, uh, yesterday for example uh, we reached uh, the result how they uh, choose uh, minor in this year and uh, gender studies is the third place uh, so it means that the smartest students uh, from all over high school of economics from um, uh, all the campuses and even in St. Petersburg and Paramount and Nizhny Novgorod uh, the smartest so this uh, the uh, GDP is the highest at the whole university. They decided to choose um, UX design, uh, developing their startup, and then gender studies. And as for me, it's great that uh, this result shows that uh, not only uh, and we do not advertising our course, uh, I should say, because we have uh, lots of pressure now, and uh, you know that we have legislation that uh, forbids so. Um, 
even sometimes speak about uh, um, LGDP and so on. And I'm trying to um, to survive in this uh, circumstances. That's why we decided not to advertise, not to make hype for, uh, with the course. And uh, I'm happy that uh, even without advertising, uh, we got such a, a smart and uh, um, audience of a high level. And so the future is, uh, sounds good. I'm glad to hear that. That's great. Thank you. Katsirina, there's a question I think would be good for you. And um, it's the use of kind of taking this, uh, Patricia Zanella is asking from Twitter, kind of a different view of the social media question. Um, She's asking, on the other side of the coin from the current question, are women using social media to position themselves politically? How do you see that social networks can help in campaigns? And do you have an example of young woman who was elected using social media in Belarus? Well, let's say Belarus, because that's your country. Because it, it's perfect for you, because what have we been seeing? Every time I go on Twitter, there's another, you know, tweet from Belarus, people on the streets. It's very sophisticated, I would say, use of social media. So what do you think about that? I would say that social media definitely are a accessible platform that amplifies voices, including the voices of women activists or aspiring political figures or women experts who get more attention and who can talk about themselves or promote themselves without waiting for someone to give them the word uh, and invite to you know, some institutional conversation. Uh, and the same applies actually to women artists, uh, those, who are, those who create art on political topics. And through internet, they have the opportunity to again, uh, have more attention and get more publicity. And also same applies to women bloggers. And I recently talked to a, re a blogger from a uh, smaller town in Belarus, who was uh, unfortunately forced to relocate from Belarus for at the fear of political prosecution. But she was saying that after she saw Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, she got more um, inspiration or she dared to speak more about political issues, but also about uh, fem feminism and the issues that she was always hesitant to talk about being in traditional society. But then having this uh, inspiring uh, women example, she dared to speak up. And she's using uh, those uh, platforms more and creating her videos on YouTube, which are now gathering more and more views. Also very interesting. Um, we have, whoops, sorry. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we have about 10 minutes, maybe even nine. So this let's make this the last question because I do want to hear from all three of you on this, but if you can keep your comments kind of brief. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about, you're all working in big cities, Kiev, Moscow, in Belarus, you know, it's basically urban educated people that we seem to be talking about. But out in the hinterland, there are a lot of people who don't have the advantages that people in a big city would have. So is there a similar, what does the picture look like out in other areas that are smaller? And uh, as this question says, are the patterns we're beginning to see in the centers replicated in the peripheries of these regions? And let's see, Marina, why don't we start with you and then we'll 
go to go back to the beginning. Marina? Yeah. Uh, you know, in Ukraine, uh, there is a decentralization reform uh, and uh, uh, local authorities received uh, more power, more uh, financial resources uh, for their development. And uh, there are a number of gender equality policies uh, in uh, decentralization reform. And of course, there are more uh, opportunities uh, for women uh, to be uh, more proactive uh, and uh, uh, more resources uh, uh, to uh, advocate uh, for gender equality. But of course, uh, due to stereotypes, limit uh, time uh, for advocacy, for political campaigns uh, due uh, to lockdown and uh, COVID-19, uh, at the uh, local level, it's harder to, uh, to uh, be uh, more visible as uh, it's possible at the, at the central level and in, in the big uh, uh, sieges. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, that um, uh, we, we have a good uh, network of local women civil society organizations at the local level, a number of uh, coalitions to advocate for gender equality, uh, to document uh, any violations, and uh, it's, uh, it's a good baseline uh, for uh, uh, measuring the impact of gender equality, not just ratify something and report time to time, but uh, measure the changes in values uh, in a more uh, uh, wealthy and happy society in Ukraine. Yeah. Okay, and Valeria, you know, as I'm asking you the same question about the regions, I'm thinking of things that have happened recently over the past year or two of, um, you know, regional protests, but also take it away even from protests, but regional movements uh, dealing with local issues that can be very, I find them actually very inspiring in Russia. Um, is there any type of movement, you know, has this affected country, uh, cities that are much smaller or much farther away from Moscow? Well, thank you for asking. Um, let me remind you that uh, Russia is a federation and we have uh, national uh, republics. And uh, the level of representation of women is uh, uh, quite different. And um, also um, the difference uh, from one uh, region from another is uh, huge. Uh, the central Russia is quite okay. And if we speak about uh, Moskovska Oblast or Leningradska Oblast, it's in the uh, suburbs of uh, St. Petersburg, it's very good because it's um, well-educated, uh, middle-class uh, um, people, well-educated um, uh, and uh, uh, with a um, good um, salary level. But if we go, uh, if we go to, for example, Caucasus republics, uh, the situation is not that good. And um, here I should also uh, um, uh, illustrate uh, my idea um, 
with the, some uh, statistical data that in recent years, uh, only four women have occupied the posts of uh, heads of subjects of the Russian Federation. And it's only 5% of all heads. And um, cu currently uh, only one subject is headed by a woman. It's um, Hunter Mansisk uh, Autonom Okrug. And uh, that means that uh, there is uh, mostly no role model for uh, regional girls and young women uh, to go in for uh, public uh, politics and uh, to make a career in public sphere. And um, the prejudice, the gender prejudice uh, are huge. And uh, our field work uh, shows it's, uh, it's greatly. However, we have uh, some uh, very beautiful, uh, good examples that, um, but if we uh, look at the huge scope of the country, it's uh, very few for now. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Valeria. And Katsudina, your job is to uh, wrap up one comment in about a minute, because we're almost out of time, but very briefly, is this spreading to other parts of Belarus? Uh, it definitely does. And the and during this uh, protest, uh, the protest and women's political activism was uh, spreading all over the country in the regions. But with the specifics that if you are a woman activist in the region, you are running more risks of facing um, pushback and gender stereotypes and your voice have to break through this perception. Like, why do you have a family? Are you good enough? Like, are you a normal person? Why are you in the activism? If you're not married, what's wrong with you? Why are you trying to get into politics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, the usual questions. Well, um, I, this has really been fascinating. And uh, I think it gave us a great view of what's happening in three you know, kind of connected countries, but they all have their uh, differences. And thank you very much to our guest, Katsadina Schmatzina from Belarus, uh, joining us from Germany, uh, Valeria Utkina, who is joining us from Moscow, and Marina Rudyanka, also from Kiev. And I want to thank all of our uh, people who are watching. Please come back. There are a lot of activities that the Kenyan Institute has. You're welcome to go online, a massive amount of information. And again, thank you very much. Let's con continue this conversation. Thank you and bye-bye.